the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord. Let's conclude our study in the book of Malachi this morning. We're going to wrap up this book, and, and Malachi is going to help us uh, put a bow on it. Chapter 4 of Malachi is a, a beautiful summary of the book itself and will allow us to reflect on what we've learned so far and anxiously look forward to the great and precious promises of the, of the Lord for his remnant people. I'm going to reread from uh, verse 16 of chapter 3 through the end of this beautiful little book. So we have uh, context in view yet again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's ask the Lord for wisdom to understand and be challenged by this difficult text. Father God, we come into your house this morning. We come into your presence as your new covenant people bought by your blood, and we thank you for the unity and the forgiveness that we have because of Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that the words of, of the prophets can be understood through the lens of the cross, through the, the, the finished work of your son Jesus, and we ask that that would make complete sense to us today, that your words would not be uh, confusing to us, but rather edifying, that we would understand, Lord God, what it is that you have accomplished and what are you continue to accomplish through your people, Lord God, and that we would continue to trust in you and fear your name. Father God, we'd ask for uh, the help of your Holy Spirit as we set our minds to worship you and honor you in all that we do this morning, in song and in giving and in speaking to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start at 4 verse 1 today and look at this summary of the book of Malachi. We're going to see a few things that repeat, and I can assure you that while I may have the tendency to repeat myself from time to time, Malachi is also doing a bit of the same thing. He is pointing back to the prophetic message that he's given, and he's also going to give us some new information to consider as we conclude this last book of the Old Testament. The first verse talks about the day of the Lord. And it says, The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so they will leave them neither root 
nor branch. For the people in post-exilic Judah, they long for God to make all things right. We've seen them ask the question, why do the evil prosper? And so God is bringing back into view his faithfulness and ensuring them that the evil doers and the arrogant will in fact be addressed. In fact, if you look at verse 15 of chapter three, the section ends there and says, and now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. But here in verse one, God assures us that they will not escape. He talks about the day of the Lord, a day that is coming. Now the concept of the day of the Lord is a little bit doom and gloom. But it's also important for us to understand that the day of the Lord is not um, unique in this particular verse, but rather is addressed other times in other prophets in the Old Testament. We have to look at context. One of the things that uh, John MacArthur shared at the pastor's conference that we recently attended together was that the most effective way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. We don't have to go to some other source and piece together what all of this means. We can look at Scripture itself. And so... The day of the Lord requires careful study, where else it's used, what it means. And one verse I'd like us to look at together is Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through 24. Now, I'll say in advance that the day of the Lord that is being referred to here in the book of Amos, he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, and very likely this day of the Lord that's referred to here has already happened refers to the destruction that takes place of the people of Israel by Assyria. But nonetheless, some of what is said here about the day of the Lord that's in view can also be applied to the day of the Lord that is referred to in the book of Malachi. Let's read what it says, starting at verse 18. This is the first important principle of understanding this day of the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And I'll stop there for just a moment because what God is directing his people to understand is that the day of God's vindication, the day of God's wrath, ought not be something that we long for. There's great danger in it. It's like a man trying to get away from a lion to meet a bear. We've never had encounters with either of those animals, except maybe at the zoo. But what God is saying is, you want justice to be made right, and you're concerned about the evildoers, you ought rightly be concerned about God. So God gives that warning, and again, we see that in Malachi. Going on, verse 21 of Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and great offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me this noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now that verse sounds beautiful, right? In fact, there are certain church movements nowadays that have songs that talk about that and letting his justice roll down. And it sounds beautiful and poetic, but it's awful. It's frightening. It's terrible. And the people of Israel are warned in this context to not crave that. With that in mind, we, we can go back to Malachi and understand that there's a, a segue between verse 1 and verse 2. 
First, he talks about the day that's coming and the arrogant and the evildoers being stubble, being consumed by fire. And then in verse two, he says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There's a separation between how God treats those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous on the day of his coming, the day of the Lord. Now, going back to context, understanding this day of the Lord. In Amos, the day of the Lord refers to the Assyrians. We also see a day of the Lord where God talks about the destruction that's going to come to the Babylonians. What we understand the day of the Lord to mean is God deals with his wrath on the unjust, and he saves a portion. Now, in Malachi, where are we at chronologically in the Bible? We're in the last book of the Old Testament. So when we see the prophet pointing ahead to the day of the Lord, we have one of two conclusions to, to arrive at. It happens after Malachi, or it hasn't happened yet. Now, again, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we need to look at some new New Testament text to understand that this day of the Lord that Malachi is pointing to has not yet transpired. Acts 2.20, our brother Peter, tells us about the day of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter again tells us about the day of the Lord. It has not yet happened. What Malachi is pointing to, and an interesting principle that we see in biblical prophecy, is that there's oftentimes a, a near-term prophecy and a long-term fulfillment. And what we see here in this verse that Malachi is talking about, is he's talking about a day of the Lord, and he's warning us that it's coming. And Peter warns us that it's coming, and it's not yet come. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul also tells us about this day of the Lord and what we should expect. God pouring out his wrath on the unjust and his favor on the remnant that he preserves. I'm going to read from chapter, uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and hope, the hope of salvation." Verse 9 is really, really beautiful. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We see a new covenant portion of scripture that very much echoes what Malachi says. That day of the Lord is coming yet. It will be awful, but... God saves his remnant people, those who fear him. But God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if this day of the Lord that we find in Malachi hasn't happened yet, what does that tell us? Let's go back to Malachi. We touched on verse 2 last week, but I had somebody uh, reach out to me and ask me just a, a bit about uh, verse 2. So again, verse 1 is the warning of what's coming. And verse 2 is a, a glimmer of hope, right? And, and we see... 
the fact that those who fear Yahweh, those who fear God, are preserved. And the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. If I can have the, the, the Mazda slide. Thanks. The, uh, the, the, this is brought to us by Mazda, right? Um, the, the idea of the son of righteousness was a bit of a pick at a pagan god, a Persian god, a Persian god that was intended, as I mentioned last week, to be sort of an amalgamation of all these other gods to sort of pacify the monotheists of, under Persian rule. And that god, Zura Mazda, was referred to by these these, this sun and, and this righteousness and, its, and this healing in its wings. And in fact, the um, emblem that you see there uh, was borrowed by uh, a neo-Zoroastrian. Um, and yeah, you can actually see that in some of Hitler's um, artwork, that, that Persian god. And in any case, what we see in this text, there's a couple of different interpretations here. One is that it's sort of a, a cheap shot at this Persian god, and God is establishing himself and promising that he will come and heal his people. Likewise, there's also uh, experts um, that have looked at the whole word healing in its wings. And there's a verse, uh, of course, we know of the woman who is hemorrhaging, and she reaches out and she touches the hem of Jesus's garment to be healed. And there are some that say that that term wing is what would have referred to the edge of a Hebrew garment. And so by touching the hem of Jesus' garment, it's the healing in his wing. No matter how we understand and interpret this text, the message is clear. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. There is joy. There is freedom. You're being set free out of a pen and given that liberty. And so this verse, certainly for those who would have heard it from the prophet Malachi, would have rejoiced in knowing that, yes, there's doom and gloom. Yes, the day of the Lord and all of its terror is coming. But for them, salvation. Freedom. I believe that's what Paul was communicating in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 3, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This verse would have certainly communicated to the people of Judah that they would uh, triumph with this coming king. They would triumph with Messiah, their enemies would be trampled underfoot. All of those enemies that were building up and fortifying around them would be addressed. No doubt, this verse would have probably contributed to the confusion that the people had when Christ came in at the triumphal infantry. They were expecting a military conqueror. They were expecting their enemies to be underfoot. No doubt, this would have been confusing to them. But the enemy that Christ came to destroy wasn't Rome. It wasn't the Persians. It wasn't any of the, the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The enemy that Christ came to conquer is that of satisfying the wrath of God himself. That of conquering sin and conquering death. That of taking away the danger of the day of the Lord for those who fear him, for those who call upon him. In verse 4, Malachi is doing a great little nod back to everything that he said already. This is a summary. It's a curious verse. He goes from talking about the day of the Lord that's going to be coming to the salvation that's going to be coming. You're going to leap like calves from a stall to pointing backwards again. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb, another word for Sinai, for all of Israel. 
Now, if we uh, remember our little handout, we have the charges, right? There's uh, different accusations. All three of the first charges that we find in the book of Malachi have to do with failure to comply with the laws and the statutes of Moses. What were they sacrificing? What was their attitude of worship? What was the covenant with Levi? What about adultery? What about idolatry? So he, again, makes a call to them for covenant repentance. He reminds them again of all that they've been instructed. Remember what I've told you. Curiously enough, this seems to have a a connection with how verse 6 ends. Verse 6 ends with a statement, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Again, we've talked about blessings and curses. We've talked about these these conditional promises. And so we can see a connection between verse 4 and verse 6. Remember or else, right? But it's also very interesting that Malachi brings this up as his prophetic message is a bridge for us to the new covenant. To be reminded of those statutes and those rules would be a reminder of our inability to keep those covenants, to keep those promises, right? During the time of of Josiah, the King Josiah, they find the book of the law, they bring it out, they read it, they stand through the entire reading of the law, which surely took a while, right? During the the time of Ezra, they renew the covenant again, and those who are uh, understanding the covenant sign their name on it again and say, we got this, and here we are again at Malachi. They've failed to hold up the covenant. So when God says, remember the covenant, those would have been a bit of a stinging bit of words, right? Nobody reminds us of the rules. Hey, remember the rules when we're keeping them. We're reminded of the rules when we fail to keep them. So here we are again. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Peculiar little parentheses in this last section. Then we get to verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is a very difficult to understand passage. Okay, we're, we're understanding that not all of the Bible is arranged chronologically, but certainly Malachi is in terms of its order in the canon. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And so we're talking about Elijah? Wasn't he back in 1 Kings? How are we talking about Elijah again? And, and so this text, combined with what we see at the beginning of chapter 3, are difficult for us to understand and discern. Let's go back and look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3 again. Behold... I send my messenger. Notice the word behold is used in both cases. It's a, it's a kingly term. It's a preparation. It's a herald. It's a messenger. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So notice there's two people there, right? There's two entities. There's the messenger and then the one who's coming. The messenger and the one who's coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in days of old, as in the former years. So we see a recap of this message, right? We've already talked about the day of the Lord, and we're not talking about a different day, and we're not talking about a different messenger. But we see this messenger defined in clear terms. This is Elijah the prophet. 
okay? And we talked about back in chapter three that that messenger referred to John the Baptist. There are some who look at this text and say that, that Elijah is Messiah coming. And in fact, the Jewish people got it that way. And we're gonna see there was just a bit of confusion around who this Elijah is, right? He said, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, again, the principle, use scripture to interpret scripture. Go with me, if you will, to Luke chapter one. Our Gentile brother gives us an account of how this prophecy becomes fulfilled. Now, he gives us an account, and here's what it says. We've read this before, but we're going to read it again in context of what we see in Malachi chapter 4. Beginning at verse 5 of Luke 1. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the people a Lord prepared. Make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There it is. That curious little phrase that we see at the end of the Old Testament is used again. And it says that the, uh, the child's name will be John, that the Lord's spirit will be upon him, and that he will have the spirit of Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. And we're going to talk about that expression in just a moment. But first of all, I'd like to point out in this text, who is explaining that this prophecy is fulfilled? The angel Gabriel, right? So we can see that this, that we see in, in Malachi verse five, 4, 5, that John the Baptist is this Elijah. And if Gabriel's words aren't weighty enough for you, there might be some credibility in the words of Christ. Matthew chapter 11. Look at this. This is an amazing explanation. For those of you who have red letter, red letter Bibles, there's no doubt who's speaking these words. Listen to what Jesus says about John the Baptist, starting at verse 1 of Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man who is dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. 
What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he who is, of whom it is spoken. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For for the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says it with crystal clarity. Now, for those of you who have taught Sunday school before, uh, as uh, followers of Christ, when we teach young people and we ask them a question in Sunday school, their answer is almost always Jesus. No matter what the question is, it's Jesus, right? <laughs> for the Jewish people in that day, the answer in synagogue to any question about the Old Testament was Elijah. Elijah, right? Who's your favorite prophet? Elijah. They had this fascination with Elijah, and there's a good number of reasons why. First of all, Elijah's conclusion of ministry was fairly atypical, right? A chariot of fire taking him to heaven and he never sees death. Then you get this passage at the end of Malachi and these 400 years of silence, and the whole time the people of Israel are waiting around for Elijah to show up. There was no small amount of confusion with what to expect with Elijah. Who was Elijah? So the Jewish people asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? John says, I'm not Elijah. But wait, Jesus just told us that it was Elijah. The distinction here is that it is in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We're not talking about a mysterious reincarnation or God sending Elijah back, right? We're talking about a prophet to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, in order to really understand this, we've got to do a quick compare and contrast between John the Baptist and Elijah. Even though it's our last Sunday, I think I can still give you homework. So you can start at 1 Kings chapter 17. There's a good run of uh, information about the prophet Elijah. What did Elijah wear? He wore the, the uh, skin of animals and a leather belt. So did John the Baptist. We have the prophet Elijah making a call of repentance to the people of Israel, just like John. We have the, the prophet Elijah staving off a, a famine. He sees the, the cloud like a man's fist coming and bringing rain on drought-ridden, famine-stricken Israel. And here we have John the Baptist bringing the word of God after 400 years of spiritual drought. No word from the Lord. We have Elijah going head-to-head -head with King Ahab about his adulterous wife Jezebel. How'd that work out for him? And what was the offense that got John the Baptist killed? <laughs> Speaking out about Herod and his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, right? There's some interesting commonalities here, but the most interesting thing, and I think the most significant about this, is that of the Holy Spirit. What did Elisha ask for as he goes to take over the prophetic ministry of Elijah? But God, give me a double portion of this man's spirit. And Elijah must have surely thought, not my spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of God. And what do we see about John the Baptist? Even in the womb, the Holy Spirit caused John to leap, knowing the presence of the Christ child. John was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when, when you go to confront John and John says, I'm not Elijah, 
right? One is coming who's going to be even more filled in the Spirit than I am. Everything about this ministry of Elijah is about the Spirit of God. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at two quick sections of, of this chapter. Verses 7 through 9. We have Herod with a bit of a guilty conscience, having killed John the Baptist, hearing some rumors from the Jewish people, whose Sunday school answer is always (laughs) Elijah, right? Here's what they say. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was happening, and he was perplexed. This is, here's hearing about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He was perplexed because it was said that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. What an interesting question. Herod's being asked about who this Jesus is. And the Jewish people think that it's John the Baptist reincarnated. Or maybe it's Elijah reincarnated. And so there's all these questions swirling. Wait, which messenger are we waiting for? The first one or the second one? John the Baptist made that clear for us. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go later on in uh, chapter 9 to verse 18. The famous interrogation where Christ asks Peter, in the midst of all these swirling rumors about Elijah and John the Baptist, he says, who do you say that I am? Now it happened, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? (laughs) And Peter, blessed Peter, says, the Christ of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter connects these dots. Peter understands all that was being pointed to through the prophets. Christ has come. Christ has come. Brief segue to go back to Malachi chapter 4. I want to to comment um, carefully on this expression that we find in verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is an interesting phrase, and the only other place we find it is what we just read in Luke chapter 1, the the idea of turning the hearts of the fathers to their children. And while care will be taken to not make disparaging remarks of other religions, it is important for us as a body of believers to be inoculated against false teachings. There is an entire sect that has taken this verse without respecting the context and have devised an entire man-made religion based on what is happening here. I had the opportunity to engage with a friend of mine and, and understand this a little bit from the Mormon point of view. The point of view that they have is that this verse, combined with what Paul teaches in Corinthians about the baptism for the dead, is that there needs to be some action taken on the part of those children who are living and their fathers who have been deceased in order to work out their salvation. For that reason, great interest has been uh, had by the, the LDS church in genealogy and making sure that people are baptized on behalf of those who have already been deceased. In order that those who have been deceased without baptism might still obtain salvation and that those who have already died might see our zeal, the zeal of human beings who are still alive, and work on behalf of their salvation. That is 
heresy. There is no other way to be saved other than placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To use this text to suggest any other um, working that must be done on human part to earn our salvation is dangerous. What I believe we see here, this idea of turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers, is a nod to Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does God say through Moses? Fathers, teach your children. When you sit down, when you walk, when you're in your home, when you're in the street, tell them these words. Children, ask your fathers, what's this mean? Right? And all of that ends with the conditional promise. Again, you want to live in the land? You want these promises? Follow the covenant. And so what we see with John the Baptist coming again, in in Luke chapter 1, we see John the Baptist, and we see this returning and looking back at what had been taught throughout all of the historical redemptive narrative. And Malachi is interesting in terms of where it's timing, right? We serve a God who is great. We're soon going to be delving into the attributes of God, and God transcends this concept of time. But he has laid out throughout human history this, this idea that we can look back and see the things that have been stated, the, things that, the sins that have been repeated, and the message that's been repeated. And we can look forward. So if you, we think about this term, the children looking back to what God had spoken to their fathers, we see the promise of Abraham and the promise of David and the promise of Moses. And we see the fathers looking ahead to the promises that God has yet made, fulfilled through Christ and the imminent return of Christ. Let's go back to John the Baptist for a moment again. The disciples had these doubts, trying to figure out, again, who John was. Let's look at Mark chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. They were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one of what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this raising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Again, speaking of John the Baptist. If there's any ambiguity, the Gospel of Matthew gives us a similar account, synoptic gospel. But Matthew adds an interesting expression at the end of this. Matthew chapter 17, also verses 9 through 13. Here's what we see, the transfiguration. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Pointing ahead to the work of salvation that he would do. And the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Like, why do all the rabbis keep talking about Elijah? He answered, Elijah does come first, and I tell you, he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, this is an awful lot of talk about John the Baptist for us this morning. And you know what John would say if he was here and listening to the sermon? He would say, enough about me. Enough about me. This is about him 
coming and preparing a way for Messiah. Interesting in the, in the transfiguration that Peter, who got it right and said, you are the Christ, God grants Peter the opportunity to see Elijah. And he graciously offers to put up a tent for Moses and Elijah. But all of this is pointing Peter to identify the Messiah. It is pointing the people that God has set apart as his remnant to identify him as the Messiah. And that's exactly what John says. Luke chapter 3. Starting at verse 15. We're in the, in the middle of a, a discourse from John the Baptist with the spirit and the power of Elijah. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts, considering John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my, my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. All this waiting, this eager anticipation, John comes and John says, I'm just the messenger. Enough about me. Let's talk about him who's coming. And look at this picture of Messiah that comes. Messiah comes to save and Messiah comes to precede that day of the Lord that has not yet come. The verbiage we see in verse 17 is one that ought to put a rightful fear in the heart of man. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, brothers and sisters, that day of the Lord that Malachi is pointing to has not yet been fulfilled. But what has been fulfilled is that he, who is the good news incarnate, has come. He's patient. Like we see when the day of the Lord is spoken of in Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Turn to him in repentance. We're going to end with this simple statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Starting at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that's the message that Christ came to, to bring. Repent. Turn to God. That, that there will be salvation through him. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for that day of the Lord, 
but it ought not be something we desire. What we ought to desire is that while God is tarrying, while Christ is giving us the opportunity, we ought to preach that salvation. Otherwise, it would have ended in Malachi, but it hasn't. And so our study as New Covenant believers carries on. We continue to, to look upon this Savior that has come, understand that all in the rearview mirror, and to work in preparing and warning others that that day is coming. What a precious book to study together. We are New Covenant believers. We are in and of ourselves incapable of keeping the conditions and the statutes of those covenants. And because of that, he had to come himself. No messenger would suffice. John the Baptist, with all of his unique prophetic callings and all of the unique things that he did, it wasn't enough. God himself came. The God-man in flesh. And we eagerly await his return again. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, much work remains to be done. May we take this, this call from Malachi very seriously a call to be faithful, to not be idolaters, to worship in spirit and truth, to give as generous new covenant believers. May we take all of these things that we've seen in the book of Malachi and may we feel conviction and may we feel that we've been generously warned of what is coming and take the opportunity to repent. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for the way that Throughout the, the story of, of redemptive history, Lord God, you have relented time and time again. We see your wrath poured out, but we also see your loving kindness and your patience. We thank you, Lord God, that your patience and your loving kindness have never been so clearly displayed as they have been through the ministry of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you came in the flesh, Lord God. You came, you dwelt among us. You offered salvation. You preached repentance, Lord God. And because of the sacrifice that you made on the cross, we have the opportunity to claim that salvation, Lord God. We thank you for that. We pray that that would be never forgotten, that we would never be confused or misled to think that there's anything we need to do to add to our salvation or anything that we can do to take away from our salvation, but that we would rest firmly in what you have done for us through the new covenant. May we rejoice in that, leap like calves from the stall. May we have great joy. But Lord God, as we understand that we are in the not yet and that your kingdom will ultimately be consummated at your return, Lord God, we pray that we would have a sense of burden, that we would have a sense of desire to see others repent, that we wouldn't long for the evildoers to be destroyed, but we would long for the evildoers to turn to you and cry out for salvation. That is what you desire, Lord God. May that be the uh, heart's desire for each and every one of us. Not that you fix everything that's wrong, but that you make your salvation proclaimed till the ends of the earth. We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, for your generous gift of salvation. In your name we pray, amen.